morning. It is a joy and a pleasure to be with you all this morning. I thought that if one more person asked me if I was ready for this morning, I was going to get a little more nervous. But my name is Adam Sadlowski, and this is my first time preaching on a Sunday morning here. And if we haven't had the opportunity to meet, I would love to do so after the service. Just wanted to give you a few things about me if you don't know me. Uh, first and foremost, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, saved by his grace alone. I'm a member as well as a former intern here at CLC. And just so you know, that is former in the graduate sense, not the flunked out sense. <laughs> I'm also a husband to a beautiful wife and a father to a precious little girl, as well as a little boy who is on the way. Woo. Me and my wife love this church. We often reflect on how much God has matured us in the faith, in large part due to the consistent prayer, which I heard very encouraged about this morning, which I heard from many members telling me that they had been praying for me this week. Uh, consistent prayer and accountability and fellowship among the members here. We really do thank God for all of you. So, without continuing to gush over this church. Let's start with a prayer before we jump into the passage. Lord, you are a good and gracious God. We thank you, Lord, for building up Covenant Life Church through your Son and preserving Covenant Life Church through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we confess that we do not know, that we do not often enough thank you for the work you have done in our lives. You not only sovereignly decreed your plan from eternity past, but you have formed and sustained every person here so that they will fulfill whatever purpose you have for them. We ask, Lord, that as we study your word today, that we would be changed and transformed by it. That when we leave here, it will not be the particular words that were spoken, but the truths and your words stirred by, in our hearts by your Holy Spirit that change us and transform us. We love you, Lord, for you are all truth, all power, all beauty, and all love. Amen. All right, today we will be reading from and unpacking Exodus 5 and 6, half of it, through 6.13. And what we will see in these verses is that Israel has a problem, but that problem is not left alone. It is uh, we are encouraged by a promise as well. In fact, Israel has had a promise since a problem since the beginning of Exodus, where in chapter one we saw that the previous Pharaoh began to kill and enslave the Israelites as a means to accumulate wealth and power for himself. But in the midst of this suffering and turmoil, God begins to ask, act saving baby Moses from this Pharaoh and preserving him so that he can be the conduit of God's deliverance for his people. However, things do not go according to plan. And as is often the fact, as is often the case, things don't go according to the plan that we think that God should have. Moses murders an Egyptian for beating an Israelite and must flee 
the wrath of Pharaoh. Time passes, and the Pharaoh that was seeking the death of Moses dies, but is replaced by a Pharaoh that is equally as cruel as his predecessor. He continues to oppress, enslave, and burden the Israelites with heavy labors, and the people continue to cry out to God for deliverance. At this time, God appears to Moses in the midst of a burning bush, declaring who he is and giving Moses signs and wonders to show the people that he is a messenger from the Lord. Moses then is accompanied by Aaron and returns to Egypt to show these signs and wonders to the people. The staff turning into a snake, representing the power of Pharaoh, being caught and controlled by Moses, representing God's control over Pharaoh. His leper's hand being healed, showing the people that uh, the a power of God usurps the power of the Egyptians to heal diseases. And the water from the Nile churned to blood signifies that God is in control of even the lifeblood of the Egyptians and the power, the source of their power and control in the region. After witnessing these signs and hearing what Moses and Aaron had to proclaim, it says in Exodus 4.31 that the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This appears to be the climax of the story so far. We expect now for there to be a triumphant victory. The people will now exit Egypt together, for they have believed what Moses says. It is now time for Moses to confront Pharaoh with the declarations of the Lord. However, as we previously saw when Moses was forced to flee Egypt in chapter 2, God's plans are often different than our own. Than our own. So let's open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hard back blacked one, backed black one, on the pew back in front of you. I'll be reading out of the ESV version, and if you don't know where you can go, go ahead and flip to page 44, I believe, in that Bible, starting at in the uh, bottom right of the page, number 5. We'll be beginning in verse 1. And as you turn there, I want to give you a quick overview for all you type A'ers that are not me to let you know where we are going. Just a warning, I am straying far off the beaten path because our points are in set of two this morning instead of three, and none of them are alliterative. So, I'm sorry. But you'll just have to bear with me. But within these two sets of two points, we'll look at two specific points which are alliterative, problem and a promise. promise. So, let's begin in verse 1. Here it says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take your people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, 
The people of the land are many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So we're going to stop there for now. We'll continue in a little bit. But in these first set of verses, we see two things that together will serve as kind of our first point. Uh, We see a proclamation and a rejection. There's our first point, proclamation and a rejection. Look at verse 1 again with me. Afterward, remember this is directly after the people had proclaimed that they believe and they worshipped and bowed their heads to God. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. We see here Moses and Aaron obeying the Lord, acting in faith and appearing before Pharaoh to declare boldly, what the Lord has said. Hebrews 11, 27 uh, recounts this scene saying that they went not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as as, as seeing him who is invisible. I want you to notice, though, that for some reason the elders are absent from this verse. God had commanded Moses to gather the elders together in chapter 3 and bring them to Pharaoh, yet they are not mentioned. It is likely that on the way there, they had lost their nerve. Uh, You can imagine walking to the palace of Pharaoh and one by one the elders start falling away. Why, you may ask? Because they did not have their eyes on the one who is invisible. They did not have their eyes truly on God. Likely they had their eyes instead on their selfish desire of just being out of slavery. Now, after Moses proclaims the words of God, he is met with complete and total rejection. Look at verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh's first and immediate claim is that he does not know the Lord. Now, there is a debate here uh, whether or not Pharaoh is asking an honest question or a mocking question. But it seems clear to me that based on the visceral reaction Pharaoh has later in the chapter, mockery is the more likely tone here. Pharaoh is not just denying God intellectually. He is placing himself in opposition to God entirely. He is taking a stand, saying, I am the God of Egypt, the most powerful and prosperous of all the nations. The God of the Israelites has no sway or power over me. Notice also here that Pharaoh's heart is not just prideful, but entirely and deeply idolatrous. As we will continue to see in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh has placed all his stock and his pride in the prosperity and wealth of the nation of Egypt. He believes that because of the nation's prosperity, not only must he be God, but all the gods that they worship must be blessing, must be blessing their country. 
How could those weak, nationless people that dwell in the wasteland of Goshen have a God that is worth fearing? He clearly is not powerful enough to help them. How easily we can see the prideful, idolatrous heart of Moses in our own personified in man in this verse. Is this not our heart's natural response when things are good? We see others blessed with wealth and prosperity, and we think they must have the blessing of God. But this is exactly what Exodus is confronting us with. We must remember that prosperity does not necessarily mean that we have God's blessing. This is a lesson that is not only for the Israelites, but us as well. Moses responds to this rejection of God's words in verse 3, saying, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Moses follows up his proclamation with an explanation. A proclamation of God's truths ought to almost always be followed by an explanation of God's truths. This is not Moses backing down, as some commentators suggest. Rather, he is doubling down. One commentary I read put it well, saying that Moses is saying, Read my lips. Listen to what I am telling you. It is God who has met with us. Literally translated as, it is God that is on our side. He came to us with this message. God is speaking to you now, not us. Christian, I hope you are encouraged by Moses here, for this is exactly how we are called to evangelize the world. We are to proclaim and explain. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Christ says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We can have the same fearlessness that Moses had before Pharaoh when we go and proclaim the good news of Christ, Christ's sacrifice and resurrection, because we are not relying on our own authority to save or convince people. It is for God to save. All we must do is proclaim his word. Now, there are a few more comments I want to make on this verse, verse before we move on. First, the verse begs the question, why did God tell Moses to go three days into the wilderness? Was this a deceptive or dishonest? Was this deceptive or dishonest since God had no intention of the people returning to Egypt? I do not think so. Instead of thinking of this request as a three days journey, meaning there and back again, it is better thought of as a measuring of distance because three days is about the distance between Goshen and Mount Sinai. In fact, it is likely there is an implication in the Hebrew here that these words that God is calling them, or that, uh, which result, sorry, picked up on this implication here that there is likely no intent for God to have the Israelites return. Pharaoh likely even picked up on this implication, which is what made him so angry. Nonetheless, God is calling his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, so that they will worship him. Second, we see how they are meant to outwardly show this sign of worship. It is through a sacrifice, a festival even. 
as is described in verse 1. This has been the theme of Scripture since Genesis 3, and it continues to be the theme all the way until Revelation. Due to the necrosis of sin, if God's people are to approach him, there must be a sacrifice involved. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 tells us. God's holiness has always required it, then and now. However, the difference is that the sacrifice, sacrifices that they made were just a picture of the true sacrifice, which was fulfilled through the death, death of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.4 tells us, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Another difficulty in this passage is Moses' declaration that if they do not go, God will fall upon them with pestilence or with the sword, meaning that God will fall on them with diseases or with the swords of their enemies, is how it would be literally translated. Many commentators take these verses to apply to Egypt as well, but the Hebrew does not seem to imply this. Amazingly, it would imply that this is not even a threat to Pharaoh at all. This is a laying out of the facts. If Israel does not worship God properly, that is, that is the way he has declared is proper in his word, then he will destroy them. This we see over and over again as a warning to God's people. Lastly, the conversation is concluded with Pharaoh demonstrating his hardness of heart. He completely ignores their explanation and charges them to stop taking the people away from their burdens in verses 4 and 5. Like all tyrannies, Pharaoh does not want his subjects to view any god higher than himself. No one can be above him in rule and authority. Pharaoh declares that the Israelites will no longer be given straw to make bricks, but they will be forced to gather the straw on their own in verses 6 and 9. Things have just gone from bad to worse. As a book says, out of the frying pan and into the fire, The Hobbit, chapter 6. I knew there'd be like two people that laugh at that. I want you to notice that, th that though Pharaoh's decree, decree goes directly against God's command, God says, release my people from their burden. Pharaoh, instead, God says, God says, release people from my burden, but Pharaoh says... I will increase their burden. This is a direct opposition to God's command. Additionally, by taking away the straw, Pharaoh accomplishes three things. First, he makes the Israelites even busier so they will not have time to worship God. Second, he scatters the Israelites across the country looking for straw in order that they cannot come together to worship God. Third, he drives a wedge between Moses and Aaron and the people Moses and Aaron being, Moses being their intercessor and mediator to God by calling him a liar and deceiver. Is this not exactly what sin, the world, and Satan try to do to the church and the people of God today? We are tempted to spend our time not worshiping God, but rather in, on distractions such as TV or uh, any type of leisure activity, or even in overworking ourselves, spending all of our time just trying to earn money to have a larger number in our bank account. We are tempted to be that lone ranger Christian, 
one that can do it all on their own without any need for the church for accountability between fellow believers. And we are tempted to distrust our intercessor, our mediator, Jesus Christ, whom without we have no pathway to God. Unfortunately, Pharaoh's plan works in the short term, which brings us to our second main point. Suffering leads to doubt and unbelief. Suffering leads to doubt and unbelief. Picking back up in verse 10, so the taskmasters, literally translated as oppressors, and the foremen, who you can think of as the Israelite police officers of the people, went out and said to the people, thus says the Lord, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom, Pharaoh, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. Now, this punishment was likely uh, a common punishment of the day, which was they would lie the person on their stomach and put their legs on a 90 degree, and they would beat the soles of their feet with a rod. Now, you can imagine the discouragement that this would cause to people that would, are, are desirous to exit the land. For They would have difficulty walking, and in some severe cases, they would even become lame. And we're asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel come and cry, came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you. But you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall no, by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his, servants, and, and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why do you ever send me? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and, have, and you have not delivered your people at all. In these verses, we see two crucial mistakes made by the Israelites. First, they fail to recognize that the enemies of God are also the enemies of God's people. Therefore, instead of directing their cries for deliverance to God, who will hear their sufferings, they direct their cries to Pharaoh, and their cries fall on deaf ears. Second, they direct their anger not at Pharaoh, the one causing their misery, but to Moses and Aaron, the ones who God has chosen to lead them out of their misery. Does this not reflect what we often are met with? That oft, does, does this not reflect what we often do when we are met with difficulty and suffering in our lives? Personally, I know that I am far more likely to sin when I feel overburdened and overworked. Instead of chasing after God for infinite, everlasting peace, we chase the fleeting and destructive patterns and pleasures of sin. 
We fail to do as the psalmist says in Psalm 86, 6 through 7, and cry out to the Lord, saying, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the, in the day of my trouble, trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. Also, notice the misdirected fear the Israelites have, which is found in, the, in their complaint to Moses. You have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Contrast this with where Moses' fear is, which is rooted in the Lord, lest he fall upon us with pestilence in the sword. This passage appears to teach us that, ironically, wherever our fear is located, that is where our hearts will turn to in times of difficulty and suffering. This is further shown in Moses' response to this suffering. He turns to the Lord. There is much we could be critical about in Moses' response here, but what is important is that in this time of suffering and abuse at the hands of the Egyptians, Moses lifts up a prayer to the Lord. This must be our response as well, for we can trust in the words of Christ when he says, Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest in your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. So far in the story, God has been silent, but he is now going to respond to Moses' prayer of anguish, which brings us to our third point, the encouraging promises of God. So we first had our problem, and now we're into the promise, the encouraging promise of God. Read along, along with me, starting in 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I... God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So, so far in the story, we have seen what Moses has done that is, perform miracles before the people and proclaim God's message to Pharaoh. We have seen what Pharaoh has done, that is, further oppress and afflict God's people with suffering. But now, this is a turning point in the story, and we will begin to see what God will do. The same verb here that is used for a strong hand is also the same verb that is used back in chapter 4, Charlie talked about last week, when God says he will harden Pharaoh's heart. It is as if God is reminding Moses, no matter what happens, know that I am in control, for it is through Pharaoh's hardness of heart that I will deliver you. 
God then continues to encourage Moses in verse 2 with a reminder of who he is, saying, I am the Lord. Oftentimes, especially in the midst of trial or difficulty, it is easy to read passages like this and distance ourselves from it. It is as if we don't fully believe that the God that is here promising Moses these great things, the one that redeemed his people out of Egypt, is the God that we worship today. But I want to encourage you, Christian, to flee such thoughts and to meditate on the truth that is the God, that this is the God that we worship. Take heart to, to Malachi, to what Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord your God, do not change. The same God who promised salvation for Israel from Egypt promises salvation for us from death and our sin. Now, as we continue in verse 3, we run, run into somewhat challenge, a challenging concept because God claims that he did not make his name known to the patriarchs. But this doesn't seem to make much sense since uh, in Genesis, Abraham, Abraham had called God Yahweh using the same word. Now, there is much debate surrounding this verse, but I am going, not going to spend time on the different perspectives. If you want to learn more about them and discuss it with me, you can come see me afterwards. But to me, it seems clear that what God is claiming here is that he is revealing his person, his nature, in a new way to Moses and the Israelites. In a way that he did not reveal his personhood to the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew the Lord as El Shaddai, meaning the God, God of all sufficient, the God that is all sufficient. Because God had continuously and faithful, faithfully provided for them both a dominion, meaning a land to dwell in, and a dynasty, meaning children who are heirs to this promise. But now he is revealing himself to be more than a God of blessing. He is Yahweh, protector of the weak and father to the fatherless, Psalm 68.4, destroyer of the unrighteous and the enemies to his, and the enemies to his people, Psalm 83.13. Through both persecution and suffering, God will reveal to his people that he is not just a provider, he is also a savior. And 1,500 years later, Jesus will make this truth known more fully than anyone could have expected. For he also claims this title, saying in John 8:58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. God then continues with his encouragement towards Moses by declaring that he is... He has heard their groaning and remembered his covenant. He then charges Moses to bring He then charges Moses with bringing a message of hope to the people which are proclaimed in seven I wills that couple as four gospel-centered promises in verses 68. And we will run through those four gospel-centered promises. The first of these gospel-centered promises is God's promise that he will liberate his people. God promises he will liberate his people. Verse 6 says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. God not only promised to deliver the Israelites from slavery, but he also has delivered all of us that are in Christ. For whoever believes in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ 
turns from their sin and confesses him as Lord, Romans 10.9, teaches as Romans 10.9 teaches, has been saved from their spiritual slavery to sin. For it is the Lord Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, Galatians 1.4. The second gospel-centered promise is God promises that he will redeem his people. He will redeem his people. Verse 6 continues, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. This promise answers the question for us as to how he will liberate his people. He will not just bring them out so that through the power, but he is actually purchasing them as a people for his own. In the story of Exodus, God acts with plagues and judgments to redeem his people. Later, we see a different picture with Ruth and Boaz as he, Boaz becomes her kin, kinsman redeemer, purchasing her and her mother-in-law out of suffering. Then, in, New, in the New Testament, we see the one to whom these signs were pointing. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God has sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This brings us to our third gospel-centered promise, which is God will adopt his people. Verse 7 says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. This promise shows us the familiar nature of salvation. God has promised to liberate and redeem his people from their hopeless situation, but he continues in his steadfast love and brings his, this redeemed people into his family. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. And the fourth gospel-centered promise is God promises that he will give his people an inheritance. Verse 8 says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. This is a reminder of the promise he had made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, 7. Eventually, God will conquer Eventually, God's people will conquer this land, fulfilling the inheritance that God swore to them. But in the New Testament, the believer's hope lies in the promised inheritance we receive through Christ's resurrection. 1 Peter 1.4 says, Through which we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Ultimately, this promise is fulfilled to us who call Christ king, not just in a land, but in a person. Ultimately, we get Christ, which is the greatest inheritance of all. However, the Israelites will have to wait another 1,500 years for these promises to be fulfilled through Christ. And even when he does arrive, they will have the same problem that they had back when Moses delivered these wonderful promises to them. This brings us to our final point, a deeper problem. Continuing in verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go and tell Pharaoh 
king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. After Moses communicates these promises that God has given to him, it says that they did not listen to Moses because they because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. There is a desire here to be forgiving of the Israelites' disbelief in this scenario because they really were suffering. But as we will see with the Israelites, not just in the case of Exodus, but in the rest of the Old Testament, even when things are going their way, they still have a bent towards unbelief and disobedience. In fact, even in the New Testament, we see a similar situation as Stephen boldly proclaims the good news of God, God's salvation to the Jews, but after he tells them of God's, after he tells them how God has fulfilled his promises in the person Jesus Christ, they took him out of the city and stoned him. What the Israelites need, what all of us need, is a new heart, one that is fully able to trust and believe in the promises of God. We need our heart of stone, one that is is dead and hardened due to our sin, to be churned into hearts of flesh, one that desires to obey the Lord and trust in his promises. Even in Moses, we see in him a bent towards doubting what the Lord is doing. But just as the Lord in his kindness continues to encourage and strengthen him, so that he can do what must be done in order to save the people of God, so God encourages his children today through his word to accomplish his purposes on earth. If you are a Christian, trust in our God in the midst of your suffering. Believe in his promises. Proclaim the good news to the unbelieving people of the world and find your rest in his grace. For there is nothing you have done or will do that earned a single thing that he has given you. And if you are not a Christian, you're here today, I beg of you, let go of your burdens, lay them at the foot of the cross this Lenten season, and give your life over to the one true living God. Let's pray.